It is uh, good to be here again, um, to be able to share with you. Uh, this morning I'm going to share with you just some things that I, I've been studying and um, really spoke to me. I told my wife, I said, you know, it spoke to me. I don't know how it's going to speak to you guys today, but it is the Word of God. And uh, so I am confident that He is going to uh, just uh, touch your hearts in, in some way here today. But let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I am just so grateful for the opportunity to study your word, um, an opportunity to learn more of you. Lord, that is exactly what it is. is it is you, the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us, the word of God that created all things, the word of God that now lives and dwells within us. I pray now that um, our consciences would be pricked, our spirits would be uplifted, our minds would be engaged, and our hearts would be touched. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, to begin with here, I want to show you a few verses. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. You know, that always has struck me, first for the Jew then for the Gentile. It even says in chapter 2, there will be tribulation and distress for everyone, for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. You see, there is a distinction here between a Jew and a Gentile. Now, I believe that I have been grafted into that Jewish covenant but God still makes a distinction here. Even in Psalm 122, we hear this a lot, that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Today, frankly, I see a lot of people, I think, misunderstanding that. We see so many people, they're, they're typically called Zionists, who, who want to make sure that we get Israel back to the promised land. We spend millions of dollars. As a matter of fact, the Temple Institute, when we go to Israel, you're gonna, uh, those of you who go along will get a chance to see the Temple Institute. Now, the Temple Institute is rebuilding the third temple, ultimately, is what they think they're doing. And, and they, they've got all the, the pieces ready to go. All they need is the right land to put it on. They believe that Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is. Do you know that most of the $27 million plus, or actually, I think it was way more than that, that has come in has come from Christians that fund that? Why? Why are we funding a temple? Well, because we think if the temple can be built, then Jesus will come back, right? Guys, you see, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I don't think it has anything to do with praying that we make sure all the Jews get back to Jerusalem. And right now, what we're praying for is for the Messiah to come back and for the Jew to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying that they come to know him as the Messiah, that's really what it's all about. There will be no peace until that happens. It even says in Romans that, you know, it says that there has been a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. You see, the Jews have been hardened in part. And part of today's message, I want to give you an understanding of why they have been hardened, why there's this misunderstanding and I believe it's a spiritual reason, first and foremost, that God has hardened them in part for a time. Why? For our sakes. Because God has handed all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all, on us. But there's a time coming when they are going to see that Jesus, Yeshua, was their Messiah. And I think that this is helpful in us to, to be able to witness to them, to do part of what God has asked us to do and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to get the message out there, not just to get them to their homeland. Many of these Zionist groups today, they spend all kinds of money, all kinds of time to make sure that they get these Jews from other parts of the country to come live in Jerusalem, and they will not even share the gospel with them. The whole point is to get them to the land. Why? If they don't know the gospel, there is no point in them being in their land. Well, let me show you here Isaiah. 
Well, first of all, before I give you Isaiah, I want you to understand that the Jews see the Messiah. There's two there's a confusing aspect. And I'm going to give you a couple of uh, quotes here from the Talmud this morning as well. Now, what is a Talmud? A Talmud is the Jewish book. It's, it's their Bible, their Old Testament, with a commentary on their Old Testament, and then a commentary on the commentary. And it is one of the most boring things that you could ever read sometimes, okay? But there are some very interesting pieces in there. One of the things that you're going to see is that they believe that there were two messiahs. Or two attributes to a single messiah, you might say. There is Jesus or Yeshua. That's not part of it. We know him as Jesus. We know him as Yeshua. Yeshua is his real name. It's just Joshua. Okay, but it means the Lord saves. And, but they see their Messiah, not as Jesus, but as one who has not yet come. So they see the Messiah, the Mashiach, Ben David, son of David, or the Mashiach Ben Yosef, the son of Joseph. And so the Talmud is filled with prophecies from Scripture talking about Mashiach Ben David or Mashiach Ben Yosef, the son of Joseph and the son of David. To this morning, I'm going to focus on the Mashiach ben David, the son of David. And you're going to understand why, but they see that the son of David is going to be glorified and exalted when he comes, but the son of Joseph, he's going to be killed. Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 here, I'm not going to read all of this, but I've got some of it underlined so that you can see uh, a little bit better. Maybe that underline didn't come through. I guess it didn't for you. But in verse 1 it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is a prophecy that David is going to come from his father Jesse. Way down in verse 6 it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see, they look at this and they say, when the Messiah, Mashiach ben David, comes, there is going to be peace. The wolf is going to lay down with the lamb. There's going to be no hurt, no destroying, no destruction. Therefore, your Christian Messiah, Jesus, is not the Messiah. He didn't bring peace. The wolf doesn't lie down with the lamb. How can your Messiah be the son of David? Can't be. He didn't bring peace. Well, this next slide, I'm going to show you some of this stuff from the Talmud. And it says this. There's an argument, and, and the Talmud is filled with these rabbis going back and forth talking with one another. And this is talking here about a contrast between Daniel, which is talking about the Messiah coming, and Zechariah, that's talking about the Messiah coming. But they have two very different aspects. In Daniel, this is just quoting this Talmud, it is written, Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Daniel's talking about this Messiah coming in the clouds. But, and it is written, Behold, your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.7 What is the meaning of this contrast? Well, if the Israelites have merit, it will be with the clouds of heaven. And if they do not have merit, it will be lowly and riding upon a donkey. You see, the Jews see both of these texts referring to the Messiah... But they don't understand that the same Messiah is going to come twice. Instead, they see that if the Jew, if we have merit, if we're good enough, our Messiah is going to come as a ruling king. If we're not good enough, he'll come lowly on a donkey. God's going to send someone in a low state. Well... The truth is, what we as Christians understand, that that one Messiah is coming twice. One as the Ben David and once as the Ben Yosef. 
But today we're going to talk about Ben David. On this next slide, we see 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it gives us insight into why the Jew can't see spiritually. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You see, when Moses saw the glory of God, his face, he came down the mountain, he didn't even realize it probably, his face was glowing. The Israelites saw this and they're like, whoa, what is going on? We're scared. Because this isn't the Moses that we saw that went up. He was changed. And now he comes back and he has to put a veil over his face every time he goes and talks to the Israelites. But when he goes into the presence of the Lord, he removes that veil to talk to him. When he goes back out, he puts it back on because the Israelites weren't able to gaze at that glory. You see, the Bible also in the New Testament says that it was fading, that that eventually went away. It was fading because it was a picture of this glory of God. But when the law was read, thou shalt and thou shalt not, that veil was put over his face. Because whenever that veil remains, you weren't able to see that full glory. Likewise today, when we are bound under the condemnation of the law, there is a veil that remains that we cannot see the glory of Christ, the forgiveness that he has brought for us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the law has been taken away. What I'm saying is the condemnation of that law has been taken away. And when we are under that condemnation, there is a veil that remains. And today the Jew is under the condemnation of that law. They are under a works righteous religion. If they have merit, then the Messiah will come in glory. Romans 9.30 says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles us, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, not Christ, but they pursued the law as a way of righteousness, of justification, they have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, the Jews sought it, not by faith, but if it were by works. Do you know how many Christians I know have the same Jewish attitude today? They pursue Christianity not by faith, but if it were by works. As soon as I do this, then I'm going to be a good Christian. As soon as I do that, then I'm going to be a good Christian. No, you're never going to be a good Christian. The only thing good in you is Jesus Christ. There is nothing good that lives in me that is in my sinful flesh, Paul says. The only good in you is Jesus. You know, the rabbis were partly right. If they had merit, but they didn't, no one does. Romans again quotes, it says, all have fallen away. Together we have become worthless. No one seeks God. You see, Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in the righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You know, guys, God, because of his mercy, saved you. God, because of his mercy, has made promises to you that are there whether you feel it or not. You know, sometimes you come to church and you worship and you say, oh, if I worship, then I'm going to feel God today. Guess what, guys? He's with you. He is with you no matter how you feel. He is with you no matter what because that's what the promises of the Word tell us. It isn't because of your merit that you're going to earn some warm fuzzy. It is because of His mercy and His grace to you that He has promised He will never leave you, He will never forsake you. Period. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. We don't merit the Messiah. The Messiah came because of his mercy. Well, look at this next text here in the Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, verse, uh, it's like saying a chapter, okay? Sanhedrin 97 in the Talmud. There's Rabbi Nachman said to Rabbi Isaac, Have you heard what the son of the fallen one will come? He said to him, Who's the son of the fallen one? He said to him, It is the Messiah. So note, they're seeing the Messiah is a fallen one. Do you call the Messiah the son of the fallen one? He said to him, Yes, for it is written, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, the fallen one. So here they're seeing, and this is what's strange, is they're even saying, here's a rabbi saying that this Messiah is going to be fallen and he's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Now we know the history of Jesus, but yet for some reason this isn't clicking with the Jew when they read their Talmud. It's a mystery to me. That's why I say it is spiritual. Jesus said that. I, I leave you this house desolate. We're going to talk a little bit more about that coming back. John 2.18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we know, because the scriptures tell us that the tabernacle or the temple he was talking about wasn't the temple that was built there that took 46 years to build. He was talking about his body. And it says even his disciples, after he was resurrected, realized that the, the temple he was speaking of was his body. That's what the Talmud... The Jews got it. They just didn't get it. Well, there's another reason that we know that Jesus is the Messiah. He was cut off before the temple was destroyed. In Daniel... It says in verse 26 of chapter 9 that after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and then it says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we see that when the Messiah was cut off, after that there would be a destruction of the sanctuary, the temple. Do you know that Jesus was crucified around 33 A.D.? In 70 A.D. the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. Completely destroyed it. For almost 40 years after Jesus died. Exactly what Daniel tells us is that the Messiah will be cut off and then the temple will be destroyed. The timing of Jesus is not an accident. He came at the appointed time. And the temple then was destroyed afterwards. So he is the Messiah. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus being the Messiah. But interestingly, the, the Jews miss it again. Even though their Talmud seems to get it. Here in Sanhedrin 98, it says, His name is the leper of the schoolhouse. As it is written, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. Even the rabbis are saying, we recognize Isaiah 53, this is the Messiah. But we see the history of Jesus. He was beaten. They esteemed him not, but they don't put two and two together. Instead, they say, well, he came lowly and riding on a donkey because we didn't merit it. That wasn't the right Messiah. It was a false Messiah that God sent. By the way, just a little side note here, just a note of interest with this temple being destroyed 40 years later. Do you know in the Talmud it also records this, that the Jews on the Day of Atonement, they, the Bible tells us that they were to sacrifice a sacrificial goat and then there was a scapegoat. So two goats, they would cast lots for which one was to be sacrificed and which one was to be the scapegoat. Well the scapegoat, they would tie a red bandana around its neck and take it out into the wilderness to die. They would also tie a red bandana in the temple mount, or uh, in the temple, on the temple mount. And they record that miraculously that red bandana turned white year after year after year after year, and all of a sudden it stopped. 
Guess when it stopped? The Talmud says 40 years before the temple destruction, the miracle stopped. Now, for us, I'm like, wow! You know why it stopped? Because Jesus was telling you there is no more sacrifice to be made. It's over. He was the sacrifice. But do you know what the Jews say? It stopped because too many people followed a false Messiah. Yeshua, Jesus. Not the false Messiah, but the Messiah. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, and I want to show you that as we read scriptures, we need to be looking for Christ. Because he's the point of the scripture. I got news. You're not. He is. I grew up in a church that taught me that in every verse of scripture you can find Christ. Now, I have failed on that. There are many that I'm like, I cannot find him here. Okay? But he's there somewhere. And as we read the Old Testament, it's much more than just a story of history. But oftentimes, it's to foreshadow Jesus Christ. Because there are things that you read and you go, why is that? Well, probably because it's pointing to Christ some way. And we have to take a step back and, and remove ourselves from the story itself to the bigger picture of what Christ is trying to, to reveal here in that word. You see, David is a Christ figure, a Messiah figure, which is why they say Mashiach ben David, the Messiah son of David. Well, both David and Jesus were kings, priests, prophets. Now, I know maybe some of you, wait a minute, David was a priest? We'll get to that, okay? Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 here. Um, we just see that David was in Hebron there, and as you can see in the underlined part here in verse 2, it says, it was you who led out in times past, okay, who led out and brought in Israel. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. Then it says in Matthew 2, verse 6 of Jesus, Yeshua, it says, you shall come a from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, Saul wasn't a shepherd. David was. Why do you think that the Bible takes so much time to talk about David tending his sheep and all of that? It, it, do we really care what his occupation was? We don't know what the other occupations were. Why does it take the time to tell us that David had the occupation of a shepherd? Because it's trying to point you to Mashiach ben David. Because just as David was a shepherd, so was Yeshua, who will shepherd my people. You know, in 1 Samuel 17, we see the qualities of a shepherd. David is being, uh, he's talking about when, after he kills Goliath, he goes to Saul, and or really before he kills Goliath, he's going to Saul and he says, hey, listen, I can do this. When, he says, when there was a, a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I struck and delivered it out of his mouth. Can you imagine a little boy that nobody thinks it, but if a lion or a bear came after a sheep, he went after it. Can you imagine if a lion came after your, your cat or your dog? I'm sure you'd want to go after it. You might even, hey, 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 but I doubt you'd really go after it and kill it. I mean, maybe if you had a gun, but he didn't have a gun. He had a few stones and maybe a stick or two. But you see, David cared for his flock enough that he was willing to put his own life at risk to go and kill a lion or a bear. That's what he was willing to do. There's a reason that that is said here. Okay, yeah, it does show us that, hey, he can go up against the Philistines. Why? Because of his faith in God. Not because he was all muscular and amazing, but because God was with him. It says the same thing of Yeshua Jesus here in John chapter 10, where it talks about him being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, on the other hand, 
Somebody who really doesn't care for the sheep, they're, they're just doing their job because you're getting paid for it. Not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, Jesus went head on to lay down his life, but I'll tell you what, today there's a lot of hirelings in the church. You see, God says, I own you, and I'm going to give my life for you because I love and care for you. Today there's many pastors who say, I own this church. You, whatever you do, that's fine. Come and go. We'd like you to stay because we want your tithe money. But I own this church, and this is what I'm building. They don't care about you. They care about the position. Those are hirelings. But a shepherd cares for the sheep. That's what they care about. And if they care for the sheep, they're honest with them. They're going to guide and lead them on the right path. They're going to keep them from the wolves. And Jesus warned us. He said that in the end times, there are going to be wolves, sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing that are going to creep in among the flock to deceive. Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of wolves in the flock today. Because too many of us are worried about our reputation. Or too many are worried about how many of you are going to leave because I'm going to offend you by speaking God's word. Not just the parts you like, but the parts that you don't like. Guys, it's time that we care enough for you to be honest. If my son or daughter is doing drugs or, or caught in pornography or going to have an abortion... Or, or going to try and practice homosexuality. Or any of these grave sins. Am I going to say, oh well, no. If I love them, I'm going to get in their face and say, I love you. And that's because, because I love you. I'm not going to allow this. It should be no different for us as shepherds of the sheep. Guys, if I see you going astray, I'm not trying to be mean and a jerk and black and white, you know, right-wing conservative nut. I'm doing it because I love Jesus and I love you and I want you to be blessed. And so I'm going to tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear, even if it's not what I want to say or hard to say. That's what a shepherd does. I'm willing to lose my reputation, to lose your respect, to lose my life for you to gain yours. That's what a shepherd says. You know, both David and Yeshua were kings. And by the way, we are to be shepherds too. Okay? Each and every one of us are to go out and shepherd the flock. David was, Yeshua was, you are. They're also kings. Now, obviously, we know David was a king. That's a no-brainer, right? 2 Samuel 5 says they anointed David king over Israel. But look at this. David was 30 years old when he became king. Why is that mentioned? Because I think it's trying to say, hey, by the way, when Jesus is going to start his ministry. Guess how old he's going to be? 30 years old. Luke 3, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. This is right after he was baptized. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Why do the scriptures record that? There's a reason. He's saying this is Mashiach ben David. All you Jews, all who have ears to hear, listen, this is the Messiah. We also see here in 1 Samuel 12, 13, that when he was chosen as king, remember Saul? Saul wasn't chosen by God. Really, it was the people who chose that. Now, we, we see what well, God did tell him, go anoint this guy, but look what it says here. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen 
for whom you have asked. Because when the Israelites saw the, uh, the Philistines and all these other people who had their kings, they said, we want to be like them. God, give us a king like they have. And God goes to Samuel and says, hey, Samuel, it's not you that they've rejected. It's me. They've rejected me as king, so I'm going to give them what they want. That was Saul, what you want, not what God wanted. Later, God chose David in 1 Samuel 13. In verse 14, it says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, as he's speaking here to Saul. God chose David to be king. God chose Yeshua, his son, Jesus. For God so loved the world, like a good shepherd does, that he gave his only begotten son. It says in John 8, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always did what pleased the Father, not what pleased Him. I'll tell you what, I'm struggling with things in my life right now in obedience. Oh, it's not pornography. It's not, not you know, those what we would call grave sins. It's obedience. God says, honor the, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. How many of us really do that? I've been convicted by that. Many of my memory verses are going that, that if you, you know, call God's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not doing as you please and go, not going your own way, nor speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. Those verses are like, oh, I'm convicted by that. You know why? Because it's what I want, not what he wants. I want to go get this done. I want to go shopping. I want to get this done. And I'm convicted by those things. See, I want to do what delights God. Now, don't get me wrong. None of this has anything to do with my salvation. I know where I'm going. I'm a saint in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do with, oh, now I'll be a good Christian and if I can honor the Sabbath. This has everything to do with, I want to worship God in the way He told me to worship Him. I just want that. That's what's in my heart. Now, I know I'm incapable of being able to fulfill this, which makes me so glad Jesus did it for me. But you know what? Thou shalt not steal. I'm glad Jesus fulfilled that one too. Now, I don't really struggle with that one much. But at the same time, you know what? In my heart, I don't want to steal. Isn't it amazing we can say, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, and we're all like, yes, 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 but remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Which, by the way, isn't it interesting? It's the only commandment that says remember. You know why? Because I think that God knew the church would forget it. I think he was prophetically saying, you're going to forget to spend time with me. You're going to go your own way. Remember, it's to be holy I hallowed this day. And people say, well, oh, well, I'm not going to get there. Bottom line is, I have a heart to do what God wants. Not what I need to get to heaven, but just to honor Him. And that is the heart that David had. That is the heart that Yeshua had. He does only what pleases his Father. Psalm 40 Look what it says here in verse 7 and 8, speaking of Yeshua, okay, a prophetic verse. It says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. So many people in the church have made it easy to say, well, well you don't need to keep the Sabbath anymore. Jesus uh, took care of that. He got rid of that. No, he didn't. Give me a verse. I'll give you $100. Yeah, there isn't a verse. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it because you can't do it. I'm going to do it for you. But that doesn't mean that we don't. Well, he did it for me, so now I can go steal and not feel any guilt about it. I can go murder. It's okay. I'm free in Christ. 
Not at all. He says, I delight to do your will. See, I don't have to do his will to get to heaven because he's already gotten that. He paid my price. But I delight in obeying God. You know, as a child, don't you just delight in making your father happy? Yeah. You know, to go clean the house, we'll come home and my daughters will often have our house clean when we come home. And it's just like, thank you, girls. And my wife appreciates it way more than I do. (laughs) But it delights them to please. Now, are they afraid that if I don't clean the house that my, father, or my mom and dad aren't going to love me anymore? Not at all. But they delight because their law, God's law, is in their hearts. You know, Andy Stanley just recently came out and said that we should get rid of the Ten Commandments and not to worry about all of these things being taken out, you know, the communities and courthouses and things like that. Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley, um, I feel has compromised greatly. He's got a big mega church in Georgia, I think it's Atlanta, and um, just a disappointment, to be honest. Now, I'm not saying he's not a Christian, not saying that at all, but I'm saying that he's a hireling. He does not have in his heart and in his mind the things of God. He has church to grow. Guys, the Ten Commandments are important. Yes, the condemnation, as I said, has been removed, but it's God's law, and we should delight in those things. It's interesting to me, over this Christmas season, we were talking a lot in our family about the Antichrist. And there are foreshadowings, just like there are foreshadowings of Jesus here with David, Joseph, and many others. There are foreshadowings of an Antichrist to come. Antiochus Epiphanes in in the time of the Maccabean Revolt, uh, that was one of them. Titus, the Roman one, was one. Pharaoh is a type of Antichrist. There are many that go out there. But you know what was interesting about all the types of the Antichrist? What foreshadows them is this. They are all men of lawlessness. Thessalonians warns us about the Antichrist to come. He says, the man of lawlessness, the man doomed to destruction. It's easy to read those words and keep moving, but wait a minute. What is lawlessness? Isn't it the church saying, we don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need God's law. Jesus got rid of that. We are now lawless. Some will say, oh, we're under the law of Christ. But what is Christ? The Word of God. Christ, did Christ obey the law? He most certainly did. Did He say He got rid of it? He most certainly did not. You see, I love the law, but it has no power over me. It has no condemnation for me. It only brings me delight to honor and worship my Father in obeying it. That's it. I break it all the time. I screw up all the time. But I stand as a saint in Christ Jesus because of His blood. Yeah, Andy Stanley here, this Antichrist, that is a, a spirit of lawlessness, a spirit of the Antichrist. Interestingly, by the way, you know when Antiochus came and when Titus came, you know what they did? They desecrated the temple. They desecrated the church. They made it unclean. He said, you can't keep the Sabbath or the festivals anymore. Okay? Can't do that. You can't have a copy of the Word anymore. Don't study the Bible anymore. I find it interesting that we don't even need an Antichrist to come. The church is already doing that anyway. We don't need the law. We don't need to keep the Sabbath. We don't need to do the festivals. We don't need to to read our Bibles. As a matter of fact, most sermons won't even get into the Bible anymore. It's just how it feels good to you. Oh, we'll use a scripture verse here or there. A lot of these mega churches, it's just, again, we'll we'll give you the parts that you want to hear, but we're going to stay away from anything that might be offensive, that might keep you on the path. Well, Acts chapter 2, here we see that both 
David and Christ were prophets. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet. The Bible tells us he was a prophet. That's why we have so many of the Psalms and things like that that are indeed messianic. Read Psalm 22. How you can't see Jesus in that, I don't know. But in the next chapter, chapter 3, it says of Jesus, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So we know both were prophets. We also know that both were priests. Now this is the one that confuses people. How can David be a priest? Well, remember, David was from the tribe of Judah, right? Priests came from the tribe of what? Levi. Completely different line. As a matter of fact, the Bible even says you cannot be a priest unless you are from the tribe of Levi. So how can David be a priest? Because I got news for you guys. There is not a single person outside of David that the Bible says was a priest of God in a good way (laughs) that wasn't from the tribe of Levi. David, though, is from the tribe of Judah. And look what it says here in 1 Chronicles 15. Just, I'm going to jump down to verse 27 to save some time. David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It has been spending three months in the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom has been blessed tremendously by it. And David says, all right, we're going to bring it back in. Because the first time he did, the Ark uh, the, was being carried on a cart. The oxen stumbled. A guy named Uzzah reached out, touched the Ark to stabilize it, and God kills him. And David is like, I can't bring this thing into my house. I can't bring it into my city. We're all going to die. That preaches in itself. Because I think one of the messages of this is when Uzzah reached out to touch that ark, one of the messages is don't touch the things that are holy of God. You see, the Sabbath is holy. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. The Ten Commandments are holy. Don't mess with it. The blood of Jesus is holy. Don't mess with it. Don't distort it. It doesn't need your help. It doesn't need your understanding. It doesn't need your justification. It doesn't need your extra good works. It stands alone as holy. Well, anyway... Verse 27 then, it says this, As they're bringing the ark in, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen. That in itself is weird, but it gets even more weird because it goes on also, and as also were the Levites. And then it says, And David wore a linen ephod. A linen ephod. What's an ephod? Here's a picture of it. That ephod, it's on the left, the second one up. You can see it pointing to this kind of skirt type thing. And on the ephod then was what's called the breastplate that was wore as well, where they, the Urim and Thummim was placed in there so that they would be able to kind of talk to God through that in some sense. But only the priests wore this. And yet David is wearing a linen garment and an ephod. And to even make this more weird, let's move on here. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 2, it says, When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. David offering the burnt and peace offerings? And then it says, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Way back in number 6, speaking of the priests and one of their jobs... He says, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people. This is how you're to do it. And then it goes on in verse 27. He says, why do you bless the people? So that they put my name upon the people of Israel. David took it upon himself to put God's name on his people. A priestly job. And it even gets more weird. Look at this here in 2 Samuel 8. It talks about all the people who are under David, you know, his commander, his secretary, all of this. And at the very bottom it says, and the Pelethites and David's sons were priests. 
Now, you might have some translations that don't necessarily say that, um, but a lot will. If yours doesn't, I just want, I have the Hebrew up here for you just to see. It, it reads from right to left. It says right there that the first letter is and, okay? Bani, sons, David, David, Kohanim, priests, Hayu, were they? It is right there in the Hebrew, David's sons were priests. How? You see, this is recorded because it's trying to say something to you. It's trying to say, this is weird, why? Because you better look to the future. Because David is a picture of the Messiah who is going to be the priest, who will put God's name on the people, whose sons will be priests. That's what it's telling us. You see, 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are priests. We are a holy priesthood. We are God's children. And it is because of our Father that we are priests. It's that simple. It's weird because it's trying to point us to Jesus. Next one here, we see David's son Solomon reigns after him. But before Solomon gets to be king, he has a brother that wants to be king. Kind of history repeating itself. You know, Saul, not God's choice. David, God's choice. Now David dies, and his son here, uh, Adonijah, exalts himself, has chariots running before him, and exalts himself and says, I am king. Well, through a turn of events, okay, this plan is thwarted. And then later we see that Adonijah, after he has been knocked down, Solomon has become king, just declared king at this point. Adonijah still tries to steal the throne, and he comes into Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, and says this here in 1 Kings chapter 2. He says, you know that the kingdom was mine, that all Israel fully expected me to reign. The people wanted somebody else. The people wanted Adonijah to be king. But, he says, however, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. You know, the Jews wanted somebody else. They didn't want Messiah, Ben Yosef, the suffering servant that Jesus came as. They wanted Messiah, Ben David. They had all these expectations, and when it didn't meet those expectations, they missed him. I think this is a caution for us today, especially when we're reading prophetic books I've got a view on Revelation, but I'm not dogmatic about it because, guys, if I get too dogmatic about prophecy, I might miss something because it'll be right in front of me. Nope, that's not it because this is the way it's supposed to happen. Be careful. Well, David's son, Solomon, was even greater than David. You hear all about David. Solomon, we just think wisdom, lots of wives, rich. But There's much more to Solomon than that. Look here in 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm just going to focus on the highlighted, underlined parts. It says they came to anoint him their king, right? Verse 37, as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And then it goes on and it says that he went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon there as you enter Jerusalem. So Solomon is made king, he's put on a mule, and rides into town. Does that ring a bell of something? Matthew 21 says this of Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Just like Zechariah told us would happen. And the Jews said, well, that's how he's coming if we don't merit it. Yeah, they were right. They didn't merit. And so he came that way so that he could make them worthy of his second coming. Verse 9 goes on, and this is important. 
The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were crying, Baruch haba Hashem Adonai. Those aren't just words that they made up out of their heads. These are prophetic words. That the Talmud, the Bible all say that's for the Messiah. That's going to be important. Just remember that for now. 1 Chronicles 29. When we see Solomon as king, check this out in verse 22. It says, they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. What? Yeah, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David, his father. You see, Solomon is anointed king a second time. See, Adonijah is trying to become king, and then David or, uh, Solomon is declared king, but it's kind of confusing. Now the second time comes, and all Israel is going to accept Solomon as king. You see, Christ came the first time, and there's been a lot of confusion, and, and, and he was kind of anointed king and called king over here in this little bit, but when he comes the second time, all Israel is going to recognize Yeshua Ben David as Messiah and King. It's prophetic that Solomon was anointed twice. Remember Matthew 21 9, when they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? What was Christ's response to that in verse 37? Well, through 39. Verse 39 says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He even told us, I'm coming again. This is the big hang-up of the Jews. You can't have the Messiah coming twice. He will not come twice. The Messiah said himself, I'm coming twice. And you will not see me again until you say what you've already said. You already anointed me once. You already said, Baruch haba Hashem Adonai. But you're going to say it again. And then you will see me. But you will not see me until then. And when he does, just as Solomon had great honor, even greater than that of David, we see here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 23, we already looked at the earlier verses, it says, Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord, and the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel, bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. You know, when the Lord comes back, that's exactly what's going to happen, isn't it? Jesus, right now, sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And when he comes back, there is going to be a royal majesty that has not been on any king or any person before. 1 Chronicles 17, another key thing here. We're about ready here. We're getting close. 1 Chronicles 17, it wasn't David that built the temple, was it? Solomon, David's son, built the temple. It says, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Well, Zechariah 6 says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. That is a, prof a prophetic verse speaking of the Messiah. And it's saying, the Messiah is going to build the temple. Remember again, Jesus says, Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Because, you see, the temple that Jesus built was him. Which is why when we go to Revelation chapter 21, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus also said, remember in John, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. You see, the temple is coming. There's a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven the second time he comes. He was greater. Hebrews 1.5 says this of Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Just as, by the way, David did. Remember, he shall be my son. And it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews 1.8 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just as God said to Solomon, your throne will be forever. These are things pointing us to the Messiah. And last but not least, Solomon here in 1 Kings 4 had 12 officers under him. We also see Jesus telling us in Matthew 19 that when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I'm just going to kind of close with a recap here. Number one, I want you to, when you read the Scripture, look for Christ. As you can see, He's everywhere in places you may not even expect. But that's the point of the Scriptures. Number two, it's not about us. It's about Him. And as you read the Bible, and guys, this is why I think it's so important for Scripture to be in sermons. I could come up here and give you a a verse and then I'll just preach to you. And if I did that, you know what's going to happen? Maybe there's going to be some application. You're going to go home and you go, oh, that was really good. But a week from now, you won't remember it. But when you learn something about the Word of God, Jesus Christ, a month from now, you're going to remember it. Three months from now, you're going to remember it. But the application to you, it's going to fade away because it's not about you. I think that we come to church thinking that we have to have an application so that when I leave, I feel better about myself. It isn't about you. It's about knowing Him. And the more you know the Word, the more you know Him, the more you have joy. And the more you don't need application. You found the joy in Him. Even worship songs. It's not about us and what He does for us. It's about Him. God, you alone are worthy of praise, glory, honor. Not me. Third, witness to the Jew. We should be seeking them out. Don't write them off. Oh, God rejected them. No, this was written for them. We have been grafted into their tree. The dividing wall has been broken. It has come down. Don't build it back up. Don't just try to get them to their land. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that the Jew would understand that Yeshua comes twice. The first time, as we'll talk about next week, Messiah, the son of Joseph, the suffering servant. But the second time, Messiah, son of David. Four, we should follow in Yeshua's steps. What were his steps? He walked in the law of God. He he desired and delighted in God's law. David did the same. So should we. And last, Jesus is coming back. The Mashiach ben David. He's coming. Are you? If you don't know Jesus Christ... The one who gave us all. If you're tired of trying to, to be good enough and merit the Messiah's coming, if you're tired of being beat up, lay it down today. Because he's done it all the first time. Now we just wait for him to come and for us to be free in the flesh. Lay it down. And if you're tired of trying to be good enough to merit the Messiah as the Jews are, you see how it's worked out for them. I just invite you to come up here afterwards and just let us pray with you. And and let us assure you of the promises and the freedom that come only in the Messiah, Ben Yosef. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word, we thank you for truth and we thank you for your son, Jesus, the Messiah with two comings. We thank you, Lord, that there is nothing we can do, that it has all been done and that we can stand and praise you because you have made us new. You have called us to be holy and we are now saints through Jesus Christ. God, we are gracious, that um, grateful that you are here with us now, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, and that your word is eternal. Lord, the applications and the things that we think of and the the things that we delight in 
They're temporal, but your word will last forever and eternity. May we put that word in our hearts. May we meditate upon it, and may we rely on it day by day. In Jesus' name.